If you're a guest, a special welcome to you. We've been walking our way through the book of Colossians here this summer. We've, we're in the kind of chapter three, end of chapter three, and a couple verses in four. But uh, the title of this series is Above All. And it's this idea that we want Christ to be above all in our lives, that our identity is rooted in Jesus. Uh, that's individually and as a church, we want that to happen in our lives. And that's why we're, we've been working our way through this series. But I want to begin by reading the text here this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. And just one uh, uh, translation thing here I want to point out before we read. I'm using the ESV, and depending on your version, uh, you'll notice that first word is bondservants. Uh, you might have the word slaves there, okay? And legitimate way to translate it as well, and we'll get into that here in a bit. But let's read the text here this morning. Colossians 3, verse 22. Bondservants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, what I need to do here this morning, I need to deal with it functionally in two parts here. Because recognize in one sense that the culture is pushing back often against our faith and particularly this book even called the Bible. See, as people look at the Bible, they, they view this and it's, well, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's full of errors. And matter of fact, as they would look at the passage that we're going to even go into today, they would say it's proof that the Bible is just flat out wrong. Let me explain with a question. How do you answer people that say the Bible is hypocritical and it endorses slavery? If somebody comes to you and throws that question at you, you just brush them off and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I believe the Bible. Is that our response? Or do you just you know, ignore it? See, what would you say to them if they came to you and they pointed out Genesis 21? You know that Abraham, the father of your faith, he had slaves and the patriarchs had all those slaves and God didn't denounce it. What do you say? When Colossians, this letter, was written, talking about slaves and masters, obviously, Jesus didn't condemn it. Therefore, we dismiss the scriptures. Let's just throw it away. What would you say? How would you respond? Let's dig a little bit more. What would you say if they came to you and gave you a quote from Jefferson Davis? Anybody know who that is? A couple of you might. He was the first and the only president of the Confederate States when the South broke away. You know, the issue over slavery. Let me read you. I'll put it on the screen what he said. Slavery, 
was established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in the nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. What do you tell people if they brought that to you? Now, understand this. Davis wasn't alone. And it's very likely that he actually would have learned it from the clergy of that day. See, many preachers espoused the same belief and advocated slavery from the pulpit. There was a guy in the South named Reverend R. Furman. Came across a quote, 19th century. This is what he hid. The right of holding slaves is clearly established in the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and example. So the skeptics of today are proclaiming, see, the Bible promotes slavery. And Jesus never condemned it. So they shout that the silence of the Bible, because he didn't condemn it, therefore God condones slavery. And isn't that so wrong? What do you say? Well, here's where I want to walk through this morning in the first part of this and just talk about this issue. How do we approach it back? Do we really understand even some of the background to this issue of slavery? And as we struggle with even some of the ramifications of it, even to our culture, in our culture today. But here's one point here that you can remember. History also reveals that many believers who did believe the Bible, who read the Bible, came to the opposite conclusion as those um, that had said slavery is obviously okay. Matter of fact, the German Baptist brethren denounced the slavery strongly, and they would not allow anybody to become a member in their denomination if they believed in slavery, if they owned slaves. Matter of fact, the ministers, if they defended slavery from the pulpit in that denomination, they were excommunicated. It took that hard of a stand all the way back then. But recognize this, there are other groups, Quakers, Mennonites, they were obviously anti-slavery as well. And many of our founding fathers were also against slavery. Matter of fact, you know a name, Noah Webster. You know that name, Webster's Dictionary. Listen to what he said. Justice and humanity require it, meaning to the end of slavery. Christianity commands it. Pray for the glorious period when the last slave who fights for freedom shall be restored to to the possession of that immeasurable right. He's talking about that right of freedom. I don't know if you know another name. Benjamin Rush. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He said this, Domestic slavery is repugnant to the principles of Christianity. It is rebellion against the authority of a common father, meaning God the Father. See, the historical facts exist that the the, the movement to end slavery was dominated by Bible-believing Christians. And there was a compulsion in their hearts. We got to end this. So how do, you, how do you justify? Here's a group of, quote, Christians saying the Bible legitimatizes it. And there's a group that says, no, it is evil. What do you do? What do you do? How do we resolve the issue? Let me put up, to dig here a little bit, 
an important communication issue when you think of time and communication and even different cultures for us. The statement I have is this. Some words in the Bible have a different meaning because of the culture and the specific period of history. For example, let me give you an example. The word church if you would go to the average person on the street, walk downtown when you get your corn dogs today and just say, what church do you go to? You know what they're referring to? A building, a place. The word church in our culture predominantly is about a facility, a structure. But if you go back to the Old Testament or to the New Testament when it was first, the church first came on the scene, when Paul was going to the church at Ephesus, he wasn't going to a building. He was going to a group of people. The church was always about a gathering of people who, who were centered around Jesus. So it's not, a, you see, and this is one example of how a word has changed according to time and history. But another piece to remember as well, slavery really has a different meaning for us today than it did for those, for 2,000 years ago. See, the words slave and slavery really are, I think, a challenge for us because we equate it to our history. I was a history major in college. I had to read a whole bunch, and there were some atrocious acts when you, when you read it of, of, about what was happening with the slaves and, and how much of a, 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 a yucky thing that really was. But there's not as much common between that history and when you go back to the early church and even into the New Testament. So before we become too defensive and kind of give in, oh, God obviously approves of it, be very careful there. We need to understand, though, some of the nuances of history surrounding slavery. And that's where I need, I need to give you a few here this morning. But for your notes, number one, the first really nuance to it there were different motives behind slavery. You know, American history, the bottom line for having slaves was what? Money on behalf of the guy that owned the slave. It was an economic thing. He wanted cheap labor. That was the deal, folks. It was about cheap labor. The benefit was toward him. Now, one of the distinctions of that that we need to understand is that the opposite, actually, when you go back to the early church and even the Old Testament times, that slavery was very often, I would use the word often, the, for the benefit of the slave. Totally different purposes. Now, I, I got to point something out here as well. Recognize, when we go back to the early church and when you go back to the early um, in the Old Testament, there was nothing to do, slavery had nothing to do with skin color. Absolutely nothing. Matter of fact, when you read this about the slaves in the Old Testament, if you, if you watch closely, look closely, you realize that many of those slaves were Hebrew people, the Israelites themselves. They were called slaves. So how do we deal with this? Well, one of the challenges for us is actually in the, word, in the translation of the word slave or bondservant in that sense. So I want to put up the, the word, the Hebrew word here in the Old Testament, abed, and you recognize that it's the same word whether you translate it servant or slave. 
So that's why when you look at some of the translations, uh, in, in, depending on the Bible you're reading, it might say bondservant, it might say slave. It's the same word. Same word. But realize again, the treatment of these people were very different than our U.S. history as well. And, and you think of the abuse. I had to read a lot of history, and, and you read about the abuse of that. But in the Old Testament, you'll actually see it was laws concerning how slaves were to be treated. Matter of fact, slaves who ran away from the masters were supposed to be welcomed back. There would be no room for harsh treatment even to come back. But let me give you more nuances as well. Now, we also have to acknowledge here that there were foreigners who became slaves to some of the Jewish people. Not all were Jews. But scriptures tell us even there that the Israelites were allowed to have these. And Leviticus 25 is an example of that. I'm not going to read it here. But the treatment was very, very different. See, they would gain some slaves from the surrounding communities. And generally speaking, it was because of war. Okay, and I'll mention that later again. But when they became a slave, a non-Jewish slave, do you realize that they still could share in all of the festivals? And they were encouraged to, be, to participate in the festivals of the Jewish nation. Matter of fact, they were included in the Passover, Exodus chapter 12. And listen to this, they were expected to rest on the Sabbath, just like the one that was their owner. Let me though, put up Leviticus 25, just to, referring to this idea of slave and a bondservant. Look at how the expectation even of treating them. If your brother become, becomes poor, now it's referring to a slave here, okay, and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Now speak, this is a slave for a Hebrew person, okay? Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him for your food for a profit. Understand, it was for their benefit that slavery actually was working in that culture. Let me give you another distinction, number two in your notes. There was a difference as to how people entered slavery in American history. You see the history of they'd go over in boats and they would go over to Africa and they'd load them up and kidnap them and bring them back against their will. And yes, there were slaves and that were born to those individuals as well. But in the ancient world, the path into slavery was very varied. And in many cases, listen, it was voluntary. It was voluntary. So history tells us there are several types of, of slaves in the Old and New Testament and how they became a slave. Jewish history, i got to remind you of this. There was no safety net of, of government. When people were poor, when they couldn't pay their debt, there was no, there was no well, food stamps. There was no help from the, the government would come into place. Well, what would happen with those people? Oftentimes then they would voluntarily become a slave to help deal with their debt and their, the, the hurting that they were in at that point. So there was a voluntary servanthood or slavery. Now, one of the nuances, I'm going to throw it out here, is that if they're a Hebrew slave, you recognize after seven years, even if they became a slave after seven years, then they were released to let go. As a, as a Hebrew slave, you're good to go. 
Matter of fact, look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let me show you then kind of how they were treated again. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. So he served for seven years as a slave. They let him go. And then look at what happens. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Do you see the difference already there? But there's another nuance to this one. Some of those slaves didn't want to leave their masters. And they voluntarily became permanent slaves. So it was not uncommon for the servant, for the slave, to say, can I stay with you? Will you continue to be my master? And the Bible then gives guidelines, actually, if that were the case. Let me, sh let me show you a bit. Exodus 21. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. It was a permanent thing because their relationship was so good. They cared for each other. Do you catch the difference? Now, we do have to acknowledge that there were also servants, there are slaves that were pagan in origin as well. And so they did have some of those that were not Hebrew. But how did they end up getting them? Understand this, it was illegitimate to go kidnap them, but most often it happened when there were seasons of war. And when you read the history of Israel, you noticed how often war was a part of their history. But realizing then, even then, for the capture, and it was prisoners of war became slaves, but it wasn't for the purpose of economic um, benefit at all. But there's another nuance here as well. It was the whole issue surrounding criminals in that culture. Folks, they didn't have really prisons to put them in. So when there was restitution that was needed, when they were de defined as, you know what, you're guilty. You got to pay back. Restitution is demanded. And if the criminal couldn't do the restitution, he became a slave. And he had to pay off his debt that way. Look at Exodus chapter 22. One to three, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, look at the phrase, then he shall be sold for his theft. He had to pay it back. Became a slave. Now again, see, they weren't just, they couldn't go over to some guy and just grab and kidnap him. And you go, no, that just wasn't a part of the deal. Look at Exodus 21. Do I have it on the screen here? There we go. 
And he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found of his possession, shall surely be put to death. So the whole attitude of, when we think of slavery in the American history, going and kidnapping somebody, that was an offense where you would be put to death for it. Are you, are you catching the difference? Let me give another difference, number three. And I've already stated this to some degree. There's a difference in how people were treated once they became slaves. You know, in the U.S. history, again, read, it's, it's harsh, terrible mistreatment of slaves. You know, the African Americans were considered the lowest of low in terms of property. They, they weren't considered human by some people. But back when this letter was written, when the Old Testament was written, when you compare the two, you understand it's not even close. The slaves were treated well and their treatment was even regulated. Look at Leviticus 25, a couple verses here. You shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. God, put the lens of God the way you treat your slaves, your bondservants. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with you. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. You know, our culture, history in the United States, a slave had to run away to, to gain freedom. But in the ancient institutions of there, there were multiple pathways to leave save, uh, to slavery. Matter of fact, if there was a restitution thing or if all of a sudden the, uh, the family members outside that, per that slave's family, if they could gather enough money, they actually could go and say, we're going to buy him back out of slavery. And that would happen often. It would happen often. So I, I think here's the, the conclusion. It is unfair to say that the Bible supports the institution of slavery as we understand it. See, the modern history of slavery really has little in common from when this letter was written and even the Old Testament. Matter of fact, one of the statistics that I found is that during the Roman Empire here, kind of at the same time that this letter was being written to the church at Colossae, they estimate that there were 60 million slaves in that Middle East area. 60 million. And why? Why? It's this. The Roman culture and the leaders in that culture, work was beneath their dignity. We're too good to work. That was their attitude. So they had slaves. Matter of fact, one other history guy, I don't have it on the screen. Let me just read it for you. He said this. In many cities of Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered free men. Thus, practically all work was done by the slaves. This was so pervasive that even doctors, teachers, secretaries of the Roman emperors were slaves. See, the, uh, the, their, the, their way of work, you could be a doctor and still be a slave. And it's very possible that in that church of Colossae, in some of those churches in that, that, that era, that there would be as many slaves in the church as free men. So you understand why Paul is addressing this issue in a very important way. But understand this. So in light of that, as we look at this text, you go, how do we apply it? Now here's where I think it's pretty obvious. 
And you've probably heard sermons on this text before, but let me just give you the key application point. When Christ becomes above all in our lives, we must represent Christ at work. See, there's this employer-employee relationship. This bond servant, really, we're called to represent Christ in the workplace and the world. Now, I don't have it on the screen, verse 22. Look out. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Let me give you the letter A there to fill that in. See, when Christ becomes above all in our lives, we become faithful and hardworking employees. Folks, this is a call to go beyond being an average worker in the workplace. You think of the amount of time that as a follower of Christ that we're in the workplace, 40, sometimes 50, sometimes 60 hours a week, we are bumping shoulders with people and you recognize how much the potential is there for them to see Christ in us. Now it also assumes one other thing. See, this whole section assumes authority. There's a legitimate authority. Talk, we talked it a couple weeks ago with husbands and wives, with fathers and sons. There's an authority structure that's not evil. God put it in place. Why? Because culture works better when someone leads and somebody has to follow. You can't have everybody saying, I'm in charge. It just doesn't work. We know that. It's pretty obvious. But one of the challenges, I think, practically in our culture today, I, more and more I hear this, even from my wife, because she has lots of people underneath her in one sense, but there is a loss of work ethic. And I'll, I'll say this for my wife. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday, and, and there's a place where she doesn't even kind of want to know if they claim to be a Christian or not. Because the times when she finds out they are, and they're slandering their bosses, their work ethic is terrible. And what do you do with that? I, you know, I came across a little a help wanted ad. Look at, look at this picture on the screen here. Hiring for all shifts, looking for people who got bills to pay, not things to do. Isn't that, unfortunately, that's kind of true of what's going on. See, the, the call, folks, for us to represent Christ in this workplace. But here's the challenge for us. There's, there's this thing called the flesh that says this, I don't want to be under anybody's authority. That comes straight from the Garden of Eden, and we eat, that even applies to our workplace. I want to subvert the boss. I want to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do. Folks, this idea of submission and, and this, Paul is teaching, you understand, a, a relational ethic. And, and this idea of submission is critical in that. Matter of fact, Jesus had to even submit to his father. Think of the night before he goes to the cross. Father, is there any other way you can do this? And the father comes back, No. And Jesus had to submit to his father. But look at the next phrase. Look at verse 22. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Letter B, when Christ becomes above all in our lives, our work is to be done with integrity. If we are in Christ, we are to work well even when no one is looking. Eye service, people pleasers, fearing God. What does that fearing God mean? I think it's this. God is watching. He knows. He knows when the boss is out of the room. When the manager's out of the room, he's aware of it. See, there's an appeal in one sense that God is in control. He's, he knows what's going on in this world. You know, I, I was looking for a statistic. I had seen it years ago of how much time people waste in their work. And so I was digging on the internet on that. I never did find it. But there were some interesting things I did discover there, and it's kind of, you go only on the internet. There was a number of websites that dealt with this topic, and one of them was titled this, How to Avoid Work at Work. And here's another one, How to Be a Slacker and Get Away with It. Now, let me show you a quote from that particular site. This is teaching people how to get away with, with work on their job. First, it's important to create the impression of being a team player. Being an actor is more important than working. You have to be docile, speak corporate jargon, look busy and play nice with self-important managers. Don't rock the boat. The rule of the game is to show you believe in the system. Do this and the system will leave you alone. And you go, ouch. Become an actor. Another blog, the title of it was this, Working Hard to Avoid Work. And they listed a bunch of true stories of what could happen in that. In one case, an employee showed up for work. He punched in. He left he would get back close to the work time. He would punch, you know, punch out again. He got away with it for 10 years. He got paid for not working for 10 years. Another story they had on the site, an employee got on the payroll of a large company and he never showed up work for 25 years. 25 years. He finally got caught when he put in his application for a pension. A pension. And the response was, actually gave him the pension. It said, well, it wasn't his fault that nobody kept tracking him over the years. A third example, employee of a company was walking around on the production floor, some manufacturing plant, holding a piece of uh, industrial hose, okay? Finally, an engineer stops him and asks, I, I noticed that you're in the plant and you're always having this, you know, hose. What's the deal? And what's your job? And the guy broke down and finally admitted he had been doing this for months and months. He didn't have a job. No one assigned him a job. That was at the paper mill here. No, just kidding. <laughs> but what do we do with work, our work and the work environment? See, it's representing Christ to our bosses, to our coworkers, to customers. Do we catch it? This is a spiritual issue. Our work world is a spiritual issue. You know, my wife 
pointed out a, a change even the people where she's working and a lot of people, you know, cell phones, they're a big deal in, the, in where they're at and taking care of older people. And, but she said at times now, people, the, even employees will just, you know, the main boss will come along and they just still just, they don't, they just sit there. They don't even worry about pleasing them. So what do we do? But as followers of Christ, boy, we got to realize we are speaking to people around us in terms of our work ethic you know, have we become a person where if, if you're on a clock, you know how the clock goes, don't you? If you have to punch in, you know, you can go up from, if say you start at 7 o'clock, you go from 7 and then to 7.07, you get paid for that 7 minutes. 7.08, you know the realization of people. They push that 7 minutes all the time. All the time. To get paid for 7 minutes of doing nothing. See, we represent Christ. We represent Christ. Do we catch that? Let me read the, the last verse for this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1. Look about, look at, you know what? I skipped one there, didn't I? Let her see. I'm going to read verse, put 25 up there, Nancy. Or verse 24. Look at this. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Let me give you that letter C. Our work ethic has eternal consequences, guys. Both positive and negative. See, I think we keep thinking, ah, it's just... You know, it's an area of our lives where we don't have to worry about. You know, my real faith is at home and at church and with my friends. And you go, that's just not true. Did you catch here? There's actually, it's connected to the spiritual world of even an inheritance in the future. Eternal consequences. So this is the call, folks, for a new ethic. A spiritual reward is in place for us that are living for Christ even in the workplace. You catch the weight of that. But let me end with that last verse, then 4 verse 1. I want to read the Phillips version of this. Remember then, you employers, that your responsibility is to be fair and just toward those whom you, you, you employ, never forgetting that you yourselves have a heavenly employer. That's the application. If you're a boss, if you're a manager, if you're a leader, letter D, I put it this way, when Christ is above all, an employer, boss, manager, they become people who serve employees with honor and integrity. See, if we are in charge... Are they looking at us and going, I got a great boss. Or I got an average boss. Or I got a boss that why should I even bother with? See, that's the challenge, folks. We represent whether you're a boss or employee, this whole section you understand points to 40, 50, 60 hours a week of our lives. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, though. We're going to sing one last song. But see, there's a master knows that he has a master. 
An employer knows that he's employed by God. See, Christ becomes above all, we submit to God and we serve our employees well. We, we serve our bosses well. We lead well. We serve well. You know, and for the Christian that says, you know, I can just do my work. Work doesn't matter. You know, I, I'm just here to put in my 40 hours, get my paycheck. You go, no. This text goes, sinful? It's wrong. And actually, I, I think we got to be careful here because I, you know what I tend to believe? Look at our work, and that's really where our heart is at, spiritually speaking. Kind of the place, how mature we're at, our ability to, to serve well. And, and here's the, the, the last piece. Sometimes we do this. You know what? My boss is really a jerk. I don't have to serve him. Uh, you might want to go read 1 Peter chapter 2 and submission to those that aren't very nice. That applies. But even a boss, somebody mentioned afterward, they were so tempted to fire somebody who wasn't working. And all of a sudden, a year or so later, they ended up coming to Christ as a result of patience in that. Do you see the challenge of, for us? We are representing Christ. And you know, the song that we're going to sing here really is pointing to the cross. But let me state it this way. Because Jesus died for us, we're called to live differently. We're called to relate differently. Our marriages, our parenting, even as workers, as bosses. See, Jesus died for us so we could live differently and represent him and be a light. And we love well, we serve well. We make a difference in this world. Let's stand and let's, let's sing that last song. You know, it struck me as we were singing that song, early in the song, it, it talked about Jesus washing feet. And you think of that attitude of humility going to the cross. Folks, that's the attitude that we have to have even at work. To, to make a difference for Christ as we humble ourselves and give ourselves to Christ fully, people see Jesus. So I'd encourage you to do that this week.